Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. everyone to the Sonic Society, the world's largest showcase of modern audio drama. I'm Jack Ward, and you can hear in the background the cowlets in their winter stables finally. David isn't here today, but I'm, I'm pleased to present episode 795 with a quick double feature starting with Conway Fitzgerald's The New Triumvirate, fantasy audio drama at its absolute finest. Please check the rest of the story out on his YouTube channel. After that, we have a great short from Benjamin Peel, where an actor finds herself drawn to the past while rehearsing a play with past performance. And with David out on the other side of the world, the tortoise, everything else begins right here on the Sonic Society. The New Triumvirate by Conway Fitzgerald. Chapter 11. Lassiter placed another heavy pouch of white fire powder on the spot of the hexagon closest to my left, upon the fourth corner quadrant within the great magic circle. He then cut it open with his knife. Purlek Xiaol, he said as he poured the contents out slowly along the lines he had drawn. When the bag was emptied, he cut open another and continued the enchantment. The gray mage then dragged the pouring powder deftly with precise steps along a perfectly straight line until that bag emptied. He exclaimed. The gray mage continued his spell, breaking yet another powder bag open so he could drag its falling contents towards the next point of the magic hexagon. Lazarus would continue this highly advanced magic spell until the entire portal for mass teleportation was woven completely around us. Then he would ignite the powder and complete the proper semantics. Lazarus, Nuna, myself, and all of our many things, and this other wood elf the ranger named Brunarian, would then be delivered instantaneously to the outskirts of the Myrdet Chenu. This was the most secretive city in the known world. It was the ancient first city of the High Elves. It was the place of Theb Karu's birth, as well as Lassiter's. Lassiter was apprehensive to return for his own reasons. I was uncertain of this plan, because of Theb's many warnings to me to stay away from this place. Yet these thoughts 
weren't the only things making me feel uneasy. I was supposed to remain in place during the incantation. Within the northeastern quadrant of the teleportation circle Lassiter had assigned to me. I was to remain motionless and silent to prevent a disastrous malfunction. But I could manage neither. All I could think of was how I needed to get out of this magic circle. I could not go with them. Not like this. But how could I explain it? Because I am a product of two different races, I am also subject to two very different menstrual cycles. My human eggs are determined to create themselves routinely each month, drawn by the weight of the two moons. But my elvish ovaries were timed for a seven-year cycle. It would be closer to 50 if my blood were elvish pure. Because of this, it was rare that my elvish and human cycles would ever become synchronized. It did happen. The last time was 25 years ago, just before I lost young Dan and my thieves' guild at Bishop's Gate. And now, it was happening again. Para. Your mind stop moving. Lassiter demanded sternly. Lassiter, I can't do this. You all must go there without me. Sit still. Stop moving your legs. He said again. You, you don't understand. I cannot leave the Iron Head now. I need to go home. Your mind. Our home is no more. The Doiki are coming. You said it yourself. We must escape. Zet will help us. Nuna assured me. But I am not well. This now is not a good time for me. I stood up and stepped out of Lassiter's magic circle. Brunarian opened his eyes and looked upon me with disbelief. Please note, yeah, if we break the spell, we may find ourselves trapped here, he insisted. We elves must stay together, always, and most certainly now. Lazada then turned his attention to me. He created an advanced spell-sustaining bubble above his head. The containment bubble crackled and whirled with ferocity as Lassiter focused his angry eyes upon me. He then cast a powerful hold magic and thrust me back onto my spot for mass teleportation. His magic was far too powerful for me to resist. He kept me seated thereafter. Lassiter then ignited the fire powder and reopened the magic bubble above his head using new semantics. Moments later, we were all 5,000 miles to the east, in the mountains where no humans live, in the uncharted lands of the endless wood, where no human dare venture. It was a castle city built into the rocky spires of the mountains. This was the ancient home of the Greys, the Myrdet Chenu. The altitude and light air affected me immediately. When added to the nausea, and anxiety I was already feeling. 
I turned my head and vomited. Oh, my dear Airmine. Let me help you, asserted Nuna. I have medicines for high-altitude exposure, she said confidently. I know. I've endured this for many years. It takes some getting used to. That's not what it is, I told her bluntly. Nuna, I am Sira Impai. Please, I need to go away. Nuna then looked at me like she had seen a ghost. The two male elves were still ignorant to our conversation. How can that be? Your time is now? She asked me in near disbelief. I felt it coming over the last few months, but now, yes, it's definitely happening. I exhaled demonstratively. Please, Nuna, help me get home. I have friends who can look after me there. It would be so much better, I asked her, as a friend. Nonsense, Ermine. This is a miracle. This timing is no accident. We must take you to Zet at once, she insisted, with a gaze that seemed to glance back centuries over my head and shoulders. What's this all about? asked Brunarian, who understood our language fluently, but did not understand the subject matter. A miracle. The Restorer has come to the Myrdet now. In her time of mating. I could see Brunarian react to this news in a confused way at first. But then his natural instincts made him suddenly wise to my potential sexual proclivities. I could see the angst of the young male growing on his face. No, I told him bluntly. Don't even think about it, I commanded him. He shook his head with feigned ignorance. Hermine, is it true? Asked Lassiter. Why didn't you? Because you wouldn't listen to me. None of you would. Now we're here, so let's get her situated, and then I want you to take me back home to the Iredet. Right away, I told the Grey Mage. Being my quasi-uncle, and deeply involved in my caretaking since I was a child, Lassiter felt particularly responsible to ensure my safety during this prolonged, rigorous state of elvish femininity. Feb would never entertain the thought of my insemination by any elf during these times. He would simply hide me away, strangely disinterested in my burning want of sex. But I could tell Lassiter was different. Not only was he not disinterested now, but he also didn't know what he should do about it. The wise and super-intelligent Grey Elf was truly stumped. Take us to Zet. He will see to our safety. He will know what to do. Nuna implored Lassiter again. She then turned back to me with a wide smile. This is a wonderful thing. A gift from Angrad herself. No, it's definitely not that. I answered her dismissively. It's just plain old bad luck again. Might as well blame Oral and his many chances. 
You must welcome her grace when her spirit shines upon you, Ermine. Nuna insisted with a comely smile. Well, tell her to shine it somewhere else. I'm not interested. I shut her down. I didn't believe in the luck god either. But by all the steady stars and the many gods that have shown me nothing but their eternal disdain, how could this happen to me now? Just as I am to meet the most powerful elf in the known world. I asked Fergos in my thoughts, but his spirit would not answer me, nor opine upon it. After protesting and arguing with them, I pulled myself together and insisted I could get through this. All right then, damn it. Come on, let's go then. Let's go meet Zet. I huffed at them, pointing up the massive mountainous trail. Nuna's smile widened. The path to the house of Zet was long and arduous. We all had to walk, for we learned from Lassiter that to perform unauthorized acts of magic within these lands, and especially on this ancient cliff, was punishable by death. Therefore, we were all forced to march on foot up the long, sloping roads that slinked through the massive mountain peaks. As we got closer to the city and encountered more greys, they became increasingly suspicious of our presence and curious of who we were. Some called out to Lassiter in their native grey tongues. Look, this one has brought copper skins to the Myrdet. That will likely kill you for that. Another threatened. Runarian was now walking beside me, much closer than before. It was natural, I figured, as I had mentioned to Keely Breen when I first learned she was pregnant. Unlike humankind, the elves looked upon reproductive cycles as historic events, requiring a communal level of acceptance and protection. But all I wanted, so desperately, was just to be left alone. How interesting it was, I realized, that my last time of mating was spent wallowing in another secret mountain fortress of Grey Elves in the southern wilds, the fortress called Cool Tabit. Theb brought me there to ensure my safety after the sudden fall of our thieves' guild. But Theb himself had no interest whatever in tending to my many womanly needs. He left me there alone for more than seven years. By the time it was over, the greys of Cool Tebet had lost all concern for me that they were forced by tradition to have. By the end of my first day, they were ready to throw me out of the high tower window head first. That is, if I hadn't leapt from the window of my own volition. When we finally reached the outer gates of the Myrdet, Lassiter encountered his first round of intense suspicion and rejection. Despite it being the place of his birth, to leave the Organa, or the greater community of the Grey, and venture off like he had, was not looked upon with admiration, quite the contrary. 
though Lassiter was well known to them, as was Nuna. They were both famous and accomplished elves that afforded us all one chance after the other to reach the center of the city. By that time, my feet were completely worn out. I sat on the ground near the final gatehouse, staring strangely at the large ripened fruits that were being sold on the street carts nearby. They all suddenly looked to me like a bunch of throbbing phalluses. I couldn't take my eyes off of them. This mission was not going to be easy. When the gates to the central city were opened, the greys that remained outside the gate were shocked to see we copper skins allowed inside. We were led by the Sovereign's personal armored guard into covered wagons, much like the Wood Elves would have done to protect Telsuma. The path we took through the maze of rocky streets remained a well-kept secret. I was simply thrilled to be off my feet. When the wagons stopped and the exit cover was first removed, the guards pointed angrily to Lassiter. You, Kupalesh, you first. Kupalesh was a less than flattering word for a rogue spellcaster. Well, perhaps better defined as a Grey, who was happy wasting his long life on foolish pursuits. This was not a good start. I could see Lassiter withhold a reaction to this level of insult. He was a master wizard with his own magic school out west. But all greys, whatever their many long years, were well accomplished at jealousy. He was an outsider. They dared not celebrate him. Try to relax, Irmine. All will be well. Stay strong, Nuna said. She then attempted to pull my arms away from where they were gripped tightly between my legs. I'm fine. I pulled my arm away defensively from her grip. The wagon's exit cover was then reopened. The angry Grey Elf gatehouse guard pointed to Nuna. You there, woodland priestess. Come, he demanded. Nuna looked back to me and Brunarian with another sublime look of reassurance. There was no sign of Lassiter. Brunarian and I were then left alone in that carriage together for the first time. He looked to me with shyness and feigned restraint. Eirmine, if there's anything I can do... There isn't. I mean, to help you. No, I told you. Don't ask me again, Ranger, I warned him. Though as I looked upon his caring face, I felt badly for him. He was a young, virile elf. He couldn't help it. Any able-bodied elvish male being in the presence of an unwed elvish female in her time of mating was a tough enough spot to find oneself in. There was a life and spirit that could last a millennia, now at stake. This knowledge cast its own sacred spell. I could sense Brunarian was inexperienced and slowly losing control. He was becoming aroused. This is how Midgerans are made. I 
just mean to say, I'm here for you, he said, shaking his head at his own weakness. The carriage drapery was then opened again. Come, copper skins, the gray god insisted, waving us out of the carriage. We were then escorted into a medical lab where we were poked, prodded, and inspected for various illnesses. Our weapons and armor had all been removed. One of the clinicians reached for the small beige bag attached to my belt. I implored her not to take it from me. Please, it's important that I keep this. It's nothing really, just a worthless keepsake, an empty coin pouch. It was a gift from an old friend. I smiled at her warmly. The young clinician then looked down to the bag suspiciously. She reached for it violently, pulling my wide hips towards her and then forcing it open. She thrust her fingers inside. To her surprise, the small, unremarkable bag was completely empty. This small, empty bag was all she saw because she did not know what she was looking for within my endless bag of holding. It appeared as an empty vessel to her. She then closed it and allowed me to keep it attached to my hip, just as I had asked. Well, thank you, Oral. At least you gave your old girl one good chance today, I thought to myself. We were all then led on another harrowing walk up what seemed like an endless flight of stairs. Now my legs and feet were on fire nearly as much as my genitalia. When we finally reached the entrance to the house of Zet, we were made to wait yet again. Hours later, when those huge doors were opened before us, we were led into a large courtyard. A few servants came soon after, offering us strange food and drink. I was so famished that I simply swallowed whatever it was they handed me. I don't even remember tasting it. Nuna was then called upon to meet with Zet personally. She had spent many years with him, way back before the time of my conception. Nuna survived the Zolti massacre because she was here, in the Mirdet Chinu when it happened. She was my father's gift hostage, a way to assure Zet of the safety of his son, Othram, and his beautiful bride-to-be, Usue Voltaire. They had been invited to attend my father's wedding. The Cayer d'Iola was what became the Zolti massacre. Like my father, both Zet's son and the boy's fiance were lost there that day. But rather than take her life, as it had been given in trust to him, Zet spared Nuna. He showed her mercy and allowed her to return to the Iredet thereafter, to continue her life in the pursuit of her druidic ways. Two hundred years had since passed. Nuna now returned to him, most unexpectedly. Zet was very happy to have her back. Patherum Zet was now 1,000 years old. 
He had been the sovereign of the Miret Chenu since Theb Karu was a child. I was aware that Theb knew him. I was also aware Theb Karu's family was among the most powerful and influential among the Greys here at one time. But I wasn't sure if there was any bad blood still remaining between them. Theb insisted never to speak of it, so of course, I thought it best not to mention him to Zet. Nuna was presented, eagerly, to the Sovereign alone. I was unsure what might come of their meeting. Nuna was a druid, a woodland nun, by any other name. She was far more beautiful than me, yet was devoted to chastity. For these reasons, her confidence in Zet's acceptance was well-founded. Dear Nuna, you have returned to me at last. Look how beautiful you still are. So young and full of life. Zet said. He did not greet and embrace her. His minders and keepers kept everyone far from him. Disease was the greatest fear among the Grey. They preserved their long lives this way, by always keeping a safe distance. Nuna bowed to Zet from afar. Great and merciful Sovereign, thank you for allowing my return and those of my party. You are most gracious. She smiled blithely to him and bowed again. Of course. What brings the woodland priestess of the Iredet to these high mountains? How long has it been? Far too long, Sovereign. Though I return to you now because I am once again in need of your great power and mercy. The Doiki have returned. This time, they have destroyed Telsuma. I am now a priestess to none. My people are no more. When Zet heard her words, he was not frightened or startled. He looked upon her with pity and great anger. His stomach boiled with rage over this latest incursion. These days, the Drow were becoming ever more brazen in their treacherous attacks upon the overworld. Now, they had gone too far. Zet stepped towards the patio, which overlooked the courtyard. He peered down to the three other elves who had accompanied Nuna. You are all safe here, precious priestess. As for these invaders, this will not go unanswered, I can assure you. They have earned a proper response. He said firmly. I do not wish for more war, Great One, Nuna pleaded. Though a war has come, and so more war shall be joined. You were wise to come here, Nuna, to come to me first. For this, I am grateful to you. The Sovereign said with great authority. Nuna crumbled to the floor beneath him in gratitude. 
It was then Zet's eyes turned down to me. After digesting their strange gray food, I was experiencing a weird surge of energy. I was being kept in a flowery courtyard and felt the need to move. So I started some strength and flexibility exercises to pass the time. Zet was struck by the recognition of the forms I executed. He knew them all very well. He had seen them performed just as I was doing for centuries. He looked down to the flowery courtyard and reassessed me. What a strange mutant looking form of female woodland elf, he thought. He then asked of me to Nuna. Who is this one with you? The one with the thick legs and red hair. Nuna then told him everything she knew and all that she believed about me. I would have preferred she hadn't done either, but I wasn't up there to stop her. Despite the protestations of his many minders and keepers, Zet descended down to the courtyard to observe me up close and in person. Tell me, how is it you have learned these exercises? His strange voice asked of me suddenly in a singular, commanding fashion. As he spoke, I was in an awkward, exposed stretch, so I stopped and rose to my feet. I soon realized it was the Sovereign himself, Patherum Zet, come to inspect my physical movements personally. This exercise you do, is it not the practice of the Bidon Tout? How could it be that you are learned in their ways? He asked, already knowing the answer. I dared not lie to him. I learned this from my guardian, Sovereign. He was from this place, and of your people. He was a Grey. He told me never to return here, and now I think I know why. I answered him. Then it is true. Theb Karu was not slain among his ward at Tel Suma. And he lives still? He does not, Sovereign. He was lost to me many years ago. I used that opportunity to stretch the truth a bit. My thinking was, he bought it. It had only been a decade since his death at Zaitafetan. A blink of the eye among the Grey. Is it true that you are the daughter of Pule? You are the fabled child of the Ostropa. The one that was conceived on the eve of the Kaer Deola. The one the Woodlanders call the Restorer. He asked. It is the Druids who say that is so, I answered. But I am not convinced. That was my father's religion, not mine. I never knew him, and therefore I am not one of them. Then why have you come here, Eremine? Is it just to torment me further? Perhaps to take even more from me? He pleaded. Certainly not, Sovereign. 
You must know. I implored Nuna and Lassiter not to bring me here at all. Figuring what Nuna had probably sold him, Zet seemed unconvinced. So I took a different tact. In all your great wisdom, Sovereign, you must know. I had no control over the means of my own creation. The Sovereign then looked at me in the eye, and then nodded solemnly at my plainly spoken truth. Nor I, the loss of mine, he answered me sadly. He then gathered himself, and then made his next command to his subjects. Bring them up to my palace. All of them. We will feed them, and see to a response made to this dastardly attack of the drove. His minders protested this move intensely, but he refuted them all. His keepers then retreated and gathered ever more keepers. None of the Grey wanted any of us in his presence, but Zet had spoken, and he was the Sovereign, not they. We were all then escorted into the hall of the House of Zet. Before being allowed in his presence, close enough to make physical contact, all of us were once again searched for weapons and illness. We then entered the Hall of Zet and approached him and his council gathered near his high throne. A withered gray wizard cast his gaze upon us with suspicion. He approached us all slowly and with one hand aloft. He cast an advanced detection magic upon me. There are others among them, Sovereign. This one. She carries more life forms with her, he said, pointing his bony gray fingers directly at my waist. Zet looked at me quite confused by his high mage's finding. I was equally surprised. I thought to myself, whatever could this gray mage be talking about? That's when it hit me. Oh, oh dear. Of course. <laughs> I laughed aloud and feigned embarrassment. I'm so sorry, I said. I then reached into my endless bag and pulled out the three cats that were hidden inside. I completely forgot. In the haste of the incident, I brought my pets. <laughs> I smiled widely at them all, giggling foolishly, playing it off as an innocent mistake. The black cat that was Keely and her two kittens were confused as to where they now were and why. How could she have brought these creatures in here undetected? Said one of the gray mages. Another defender pulled the sovereign a few steps away to safety. Zet pulled himself from their grasp. The high mage then closed in on me and the breen cats quite defensively. He then dispelled the polymorph magic I had cast upon them revealing them as a human woman and her two young children. Humans! This red rogue has brought humans into our midst, another gray wizard declared. Elmine, what is the meaning of this? asked Lassiter desperately. Dearest Sovereign, we knew nothing of this, Nuna protested. But Zed did not order my death. 
nor did he run in fear of the three humans. Clearly, a young family gathered fearfully on the floor before him. He simply laughed out loud, slowly <laughs> and joyfully, <laughs> with a wide <laughs> smile. Had he done or said anything else, his gray mages and armored guards would know exactly what to do next. But as his laughs grew louder, his entire entourage grew ever more confused. <laughs> I like this one. She is very clever, he said, pointing at me, still laughing and smiling widely. When his laughter stopped, he made his last command. Take them all to the outer burrows, except for my dear Nuna. And this one, I want to learn more about her. And protect these humans. Keep them safe, somewhere out of sight. Nuna and I were then brought to a private room inside the Sovereign's chambers. His many servants and concubines were greatly dismayed by our arrival. I was totally disinterested in their battles of female hierarchy. All I could think of doing was to hide myself away until my most unwanted time of mating was finally over. Frances Taylor was thrilled to be asked to spend a repertory season performing at Little Haven Theatre in... <laughs> no, no, it's best not to say where it was exactly, as it's no longer there. Suffice to say, it was located in a sleepy backwater coastal town. The audition had gone well, and after a lean resting spell, she was keen to start, especially as the opening play in the season was to be a production of Emlyn Williams's The Morning Star. Frances adored plays written and set in that era. She often felt she would have loved to have lived during that time, and gaining a role in that play seemed not so much serendipity as almost preordained. So, it was with a spring in her step that she arrived at the theatre for the first day's rehearsal, only to be confronted with a slightly uneasy atmosphere in the rehearsal room. This she put down to the usual first-day nerves of people getting to know each other and the prospect of bringing a play from page to stage. After a couple of days, the nervousness had dissipated and Frances found herself immensely enjoying being part of a company and the joy that being around fellow creatives can bring. Still, she felt an unsettling aura, which she came to realise wasn't coming from the people around her, but the venue itself. She had always possessed an uncanny sensory ability when it came to past events in a place or building. During a break, Frances fell into conversation with another actor who told her, during the war, the theatre was badly damaged from a leftover bomb dropped by a plane on its way back to Germany. It killed many people, including the cast. So the place is haunted, replied Frances. Her definitive pronouncement somewhat disconcerted her colleague. Well, they are said to appear on stage on the anniversary of the raid. 
A tradition came about that the theatre is kept dark on that day and extra performances are given or rehearsal scheduled instead. The current management want to change that, though. When is the anniversary? asked Francis. Tonight came the answer. An overwhelming curiosity in Francis made her resolve to spend the evening in the theatre. Once the day's rehearsals were over, she signed out with the rest of the cast, but then pretended to have forgotten something and slipped back inside without the stage doorkeeper noticing. She hid herself in a cubby hole she had found earlier and waited. As soon as she felt that no one was left, Francis emerged from her hiding place and checked her watch. It was ten past seven, or the fifteen-minute call time. Francis made her way to the stage and found a chair which she placed centre stage and sat down. She considered all the people who had performed in the very same theatre throughout the decades, especially those who had been there providing entertainment in those darkest of days when a bomb fell, violently obliterating them. She sincerely believed that an event like that must leave some kind of imprint. Lost in reverie, Francis stood up and wandered over to the wide wings at stage right. She glanced at her watch which read 7.25 or the Act One beginner's call. Francis then stepped back out onto the stage and saw that the curtains were now fully closed. She also now noticed that the house lights and audience chatter had imperceptibly faded up. Confused but not perturbed, she sat back in the chair she had placed earlier and then the curtains were drawn. The stage lights came up as the house lights dimmed and she found herself surrounded by the props and furniture of a country house from a much earlier period. Briefly, she saw the outline of figures near her. But the blinding lights intensified to such a degree that she fell into unconsciousness. Frances Taylor was found dead the following day, sat on a chair in the middle of the stage with an enigmatically happy smile on her face. The first curious aspect was that she was wearing an outfit from the Second World War era despite the fact that the door to the costume department was securely locked and her own clothes were nowhere to be found. The second curious aspect was that shortly afterwards a scrapbook was found of old reviews and reports. Emlyn Williams's play The Morning Star was the one being performed when the bomb hit the theatre and listed in the cast was one Francis Taylor. Past performance was performed by Nonnie Lewis and it was written and produced by Benjamin Peel. Boy, that wind is sure picking up. It's almost like we're expecting some wintry weather. Who's that? St. Nick! <laughs> Greetings, Jack. This is the beginning of the most hopeful month of the year. Can you and David meet me in the Winterverse? Well, we'll certainly try. 
Until next week, then. On Donda! Wow! Right up into the sky. We just left the Horrorverse, and now it's time for Christmas. Thank you.